folks, this is Jason from The High Route to intro episode five of The High Route podcast. In this episode, we have a lively discussion and a wide-ranging one at that between Adam Fabricant, Billy Haas, and Lou Dawson. While Adam and Billy have just returned from a successful first descent-oriented trip in Chile, Lou is finishing up the final touches on a long-awaited memoir. Adam and Billy are regulars at the High Route, where Lou is a storied and revered writer and skier. He wrote the now classic ski mountaineering history titled Wild Snow and was the founder of a beloved website by the same name. We are thrilled to have him on the show. Okay. I'm going to take a minute to interrupt the introduction to plug our reader-supported website, The High Route, where our simple mission is to cover human-powered turn-making in the backcountry. Listen up for the site address because we have hyphens in the name. It's the-high-route.com. One more time, the-high-route.com. And hyphen is definitely not spelled out. It's just the dash between the words. Another note, our podcasts are free, yet are not free to produce or host on a server. If you are enjoying our podcast, please consider supporting the site. That's it for the plug. Now it's on to the show featuring Adam, Billy, and Lou Dawson. Lou, so first things first, uh, it's really nice to meet you. Uh, I know not in person, but virtually here through the, through the computer. And, uh, I mean, I'd go as far to say it's, you know, it's an honor to have this conversation and to be able to chat about some of these things we're about to chat about. Uh, I know Adam probably feels similarly, similarly when Jason had first proposed this, this, this conversation, the genesis of this conversation was a, a comment actually Adam had made, um, in a previous podcast, a exceptionally nerdy podcast on different types of ski mountaineering ropes. And I can't remember the exact, uh, you know, the exact comment verbatim, but he was basically made a comment as like, you know, well, the golden age of ski mountaineering is whatever era I'm in right now. So I just like to think of myself as I'm in the golden age of ski mountaineering. Pardon us, folks. We are going to interrupt the programming here for a moment to get that exact quote from Adam. Here is a replay. So, I mean, today, ladies and gentlemen, this afternoon, we we delve deep into the different options for ski ropes, some of the pros and cons, some of the nuances, and a lot of our uh, subjective personal preferences. But we've formed these opinions over... Uh, you know, hours, days, and years in the mountains. And I encourage everyone to test this gear thoroughly before bringing it out into the big hills. But it's pretty cool. We live in the golden age of ski mountaineering. A lot of options for ropes and belay devices to get us up and down the hills. How lucky are we to be living in the golden age of ski mountaineering? That's that's special, huh? <laughs> um I don't know. Maybe maybe we could get Lou on the line and see if he agrees with that or something. Cool. But yeah, I would I would I would be curious his thoughts on that, and I'd be curious as some of the uh, people on the other side of the pond here uh, how they feel about that too. But but 
Um, well, you know, oh, I'd ahead, like Fabs. to think that whatever time we're all living in can be the golden age with the right perspective. And, you know, I, I wasn't, uh, I was a young lad. I was born in 87. So in the early 90s, when some would say that that was some of the golden age for the Western United States of ski mountaineering, I wasn't really ready yet. So how I see it is we're, we're still in that golden age and with the right perspective, mindset, uh, and tools in our backpack, we, you too can join us in this golden age. I mean, this winter is going to be the best one yet. It's going to be the best one yet. Now it's back to the episode. You know, that kind of spurred this uh, thought of like, you know, like what is the golden age of ski mountaineering and, and, and really what is, what is, where are we now in that? Um, and like many sports, there's been highs and lows and, you know, resurgences and dips and things. And, um, so that's where this conversation came from. And Jason had thought, well, who better to ask for this than Lou? Um, you know, and that's, that's where this really came from. And from my point of view, cause I'm a bit of a history nerd and I love, you know, I, I love the chronicling and, uh, of this sport of climbing of things like that. I think it's a very romantic history and, and, and a very interesting history, but, um, you know, really for me, there's been no one, at least in North America that has put in the time and, um, you know, really had the, I guess, yeah, I mean, other than you, there's been no one who's who's really chronicled the sport, and not just skiing, but backcountry ski touring and ski mountaineering, because um, the history of skiing is somewhat well documented, and and you know it does skew a little more heavily to the more popular part of the sport, which is the resort side and ski racing in particular. I found, um, but ski mountaineering, I feel like is is a little less covered, and and I think that was one of the things that we wanted to chat about as well. Yeah, you guys are familiar with my book, uh, Wild Snow, that's the history of ski mountaineering in North America. Now that book only goes up into the, I guess, the 80s, you know, and so there's this whole other era that I know there's another writer who might be covering it. I'm a little burned out on that kind of writing right now, so I don't think I'm going to be writing another history book anytime soon. But, you know, the, the concept of the golden age of, of something you love and a recreational endeavor especially is really interesting to me because it's just fun, I think, more than anything else, kind of getting into this nostalgia and thinking about what, you, what you've done in the past or what other people have done. Um, you know, it could be said that the golden age of your sport is the, is the age just before you did it because then it's, you're looking at it through the rose-colored glasses um, it also could be said that it, it's the real pioneering days of the sport. Now, that can go all the way back to the 1930s, you know, or even even before then, 1920s in the, in the Alps and stuff they were doing up in the in the northeastern United States in New England and those and that sort of thing. You know, I thought about it when you, I looked at this question from you and I thought, well, what is there one that a, a golden age that I would really tick or get or identify in terms of my own lifespan because I've been as you alluded to I've been doing this stuff for a while I'm 72 years old and I started doing it in the in the late 1960s I feel like it's 
it it's more an individual thing, especially as as the years roll by. There might be a time in your own life when you really hit it. Um, maybe that for you guys that might be right now. You know, with all these amazing descents you've been doing and these epic trips, and uh, or it might be what what led up to that. You know, more the innocent days when you were learning how to do the stuff, and then later on when you have families and you have children and you introduce them to the sport and that you love. As you age, you might look back on that as your own special time. So it it's a really I think really personal thing, you know, in terms of talking from the, I'll put on my historian hat for a moment. And I would say the golden age of, of ski mountaineering, if I was writing a book and I had to say title a chapter, the golden age of ski mountaineering, I'd probably put that at the, um, maybe around the, the late 1970s on into the 80s when when the sport did start burgeoning in popularity and the gear really started to improve. Because before then, the, the gear just basically sucked. I mean, it was, it was the, the stuff was always breaking. It was incredibly heavy. You know, a good AT gear setup weighed up to 12 pounds per foot. You know, and you're slogging around on that stuff. And admittedly, we were, you know, those of us who were using that gear were exceptional athletes that were, you know, but, you know, nonetheless, we were moving about a, a fifth the speed that you guys would move when you were doing Mount Forica or something, you know. So it's it's pretty funny to see the difference or to, or to think about the difference. Yeah, I think one thing you said, Lou, that uh, sort of resonates with me is it's your relationship to that golden era. And like maybe it's right before your time or before you maybe got into it a little bit more. And I know for myself, being primarily based in the Teton range, I think of the 90s as the golden age out here. Yeah. You know, like, sure, the biggest mountains were first skied in the 70s and 80s, but the 90s are when the gear was better and they sort of realized, like, hey, let's see how far we can push this. So that's that's what I romanticize the most. Yeah, I'd go for that because you're right. That's when people started realizing that, oh, wow. You know, these skis and these bindings and these boots really do work. And then, you know, there was that kind of combination of skiing and alpinism that admittedly began, you know, many, many years ago with the extreme skiing in the Alps and people like Chris Landry in the U.S. But that melding was sort of slow in coming. And then all of a sudden, yeah, in the 90s on into the present, there's been a real combination of climbing and and skiing and that is has made it golden obviously very rich and i know i think of like that's right before my time or maybe a little bit more than right before my time but i think of that as like oh man i I wish i was here in the 90s yeah there you go when no one had done any of the the obvious plumb lines and but it would be curious to get someone 10 15 years younger than myself and get their perspective and sort of see what they think and what their relationship to it is because they might not be thinking back to the 90s. They might be thinking to the 2010s or something like that. Yeah, you get you get into some values-based stuff and philosophy with it. But it is an interesting concept. It's like what is the, what is the golden time? 
Well, and what Adam just said was, you know, kind of spurred just a, a thought I had, and and you said it, Lou, that sometimes it's the combination of, you know, the right people with the right skills, but also sometimes the right equipment, you know, that that equipment in the sport really, because this is a very um, equipment-based activity that opened doors and had, you know, Sylvan Sudan had different equipment back in his day or different technique or, or, or knowledge at that time. What, what would have he done? But thinking to Adam's comment, what a younger person right now would say, and this was almost to a thought we had had um, for this episode, but I wonder right now, what is that piece of equipment? Because to me, when I look at my career in ski mountaineering or my time in the sport, um, you know, the Dean of Fit Binding already existed. The modern touring boot, as we know it, existed. And, and, and skis realistically haven't changed that much in 10, 15 years. Neither has the binding, neither has the boot in my mind. They've gotten lighter, more articulation, um, you know, more reliable, things like that. But the, a, a, a skin is essentially the same. That hasn't changed much. Um, you know, ice axis, yeah, these ropes have gotten lighter, but not not that much. I think to me, what I've been seeing, and I'm, I'm curious as to what others are out there, is uh, what we're carrying around in our pockets these days with our phones and the technology and the mapping. And to me, that's what's unlocking some of these further ski descents and, and some of these uh, newer, more inobvious lines, you know, not just the the plumb lines that we can see from the road and stuff. Uh, but I'm, I'm curious as to what others think. Well, this was a, a, a subject of frequent discussion when I was hanging out in Europe with the inventor of the, of the Dinafit binding, Fritz Bartle, because we were always talking about what's the next great thing and who, who's going to invent it, because he was an inventor, you know. And I have to say, we, we, were, we were pretty much a lot of times at a loss, you know, because that stuff evolves organically. It's not like you can just sit there at a, a desk with a notepad um, and come up with ideas that are going to score. Maybe you can once in a while, but it, it doesn't really happen like that. Like even Bartle with his binding, that binding came directly from a, a binding called the Raymer binding, which had the two, the pin and pivot uh, ball and socket system in the toe, but it was inverted. The, um, the socket was on the on the outside, and the and the ball part was on the inside, and it was fairly large, about the size of the tip of your pinky finger, and it had a lot of trouble with um, friction, and because the the surface areas were so large, it had a lot of trouble with friction and that sort of thing. And then Fritz, the story is he went to Mont Blanc with the previous generation AT gear, which was an Easter binding, I think, and he had that typical setup of about a 10 or 11 pound per foot system. And he just got exhausted trying to ski tour and ski, do a ski descent at Mont Blanc. He was with his father, came back and he's like, there's got to be a better way. And the first thought was, let's build part of the binding into the boot so it can be made lighter and use the boot for rigidity. 
But then the, the ramer was there. And so what he did is he took the ramer and basically inverted the parts and bolted them to the boot. And that's how that whole thing started. So these things are evolutionary, you know. So the question is right now, what is sitting there that people are, are really improving on? And I, I thought the ropes are a really, really good example of that. But the, the electronics, I hadn't thought about that, but that seems like where the, there's room for huge improvement and changes in terms of what we have for the sport. For example, you know, I've always wondered if they could ever make the ground penetrating radar that would really tell you what the snowpack layers were. It would just be some kind of device you would attach to your phone and and zap the snow and get a snow profile without digging a pit. And I know that some companies have tried to accomplish this, but it was too involved and too finicky, and and uh, they d it didn't work out. But there you go. You know, maybe that's the next great thing. Yeah, I guess thinking about how the gear relates to you know the era. Like Billy said, we're just getting a lot of micro refinement in every piece of gear, but we could we can think about it as the phone or just really like knowledge and information. Because it's it's how we share the information, it's how we navigate. I mean, it's challenging to go out into the mountains now and get lost. But like you have to choose to not use the technology that is readily available. You don't have to be even amazing with it. Like using basic mapping programs is relatively simple. And as Billy's saying, now we can find these like little nooks and crannies, you know, flying around on Google Earth or or what have you. And in some ways to me it's sad. Um maybe sad's not the right word, but it's yeah, I guess sad. Um because there really is no true unknown. Like, like we figured it all out. Like you can look at anything on a map or with some imagery, but in some ways that's the best gift of all because yes, we ha we know more and there's less uncertainty, but now we can go somewhere with a higher level of confidence with these newer tools in our backpack and therefore have the opportunity to take our skis to wilder and wilder places. Um, so it's like a double-edged sword to me. The romantic in me is like, man, it would have been cooler to be out there in the 90s when they barely had a weather forecast and didn't really understand snow that well. But heck, it's pretty nice right now to have these amazing forecasts and it's so easy to navigate. Like yesterday I was skiing up on Togety Pass out here and I'm trying to find these like little tree alleys and I just like look at the phone and I'm like, oh, go like 200 feet to the left and I'll have a great fall line run or if I could hope for the best and I might just ski in some really tight trees. And that took me 10 seconds. Yeah, I've been amused by the by the progression of all that stuff because I was just doing some writing. That actually, my wife and I were working on about a trip we'd done um, back in the 90s when we did not have GPS. And I was using my compass and taking compass bearings to find a, a mountain um, and make sure we got back uh, back to our camp. And I was literally, you know, on a map, drawing lines, getting the number, you know, the ex exact degrees that I'd set the compass to, and then marching off into the fog, lining our skis up with the compass needle, hoping for the best, you know, and even counting the number of steps sometimes, or, or the number of rope lengths if we were on a glacier. And 
contrast that with, I remember the first time I really used a GPS was in Europe and I, I bought a Garmin. It was a standalone GPS and we were at a hut and this complete whiteout, like there was maybe five feet of visibility, you know, typical. And with a compass and the style of travel we were doing, I never, I would have just stayed in the hut and eaten some strudel. And instead, we got the GPS out and we just march off into the fog. I mean, and, and it was, I was pretty amused, I have to say. And I was also a little scared because I was like, you know, what's out here? I can't see anything. And I'm just marching through the fog. It was, it was really an odd experience. And we, we marched through the fog. We, mar we climbed a, a small mountain. And then I'm looking at my GPS and we we're finally standing on top of the mountain. We we're still in the fog. And I noticed that it showed this the, the cliffs on the side of the mountain, and I determined that we were standing maybe 15 feet from this enormous cliff, which we couldn't see for anything. And it was a pretty interesting experience, you know. What so point being, what the GPS got us into um, could have been serious. And in the case of a compass, I wouldn't have even been attempting it. Pretty interesting to see the progression in that stuff. Well, I think I think that opens a delicate question of has some of these tools and particularly some of these electronics and mapping and navigation tools uh, made this sport more accessible in a good way or a bad way? Um, I'd, I'd argue both. Um, and the educator in me, you know, the educator in me believes that we should be making this sport as accessible as as possible to people. Um, but I have seen, and I'm sure everyone has seen and can give plenty of, um, instances of where these things have, have brought people into situations that, uh, they're not prepared for at that, at that time, because it's so accessible because you can be like, I want to go ski X, Y, Z Kular. Oh, let me just go on the computer, look on the fat map or the Google earth and there's a track and I can download that on my phone and follow it. And the next thing you know, boom, I'm on top of this run, but the conditions aren't as I thought it's totally socked in. And maybe I wasn't, this took me longer to get here. It's getting dark. Maybe I wasn't as prepared as I should have been to attempt this. We're back in the day. I mean, I remember Adam and I, when we first learned about the Munter formula, um, we were sitting there doing like Munter formulas on, on how long it was going to take us to do certain things on like a sheet of paper and doing the math out. And both him and I aren't exactly math wizards. And we were just like, okay, you know, and, and we, and we had our maps. I had tons of maps. I still have them somewhere. Um, you know, and, and, and this was as that stuff was kind of getting there, but it wasn't there yet. Um, and, and it created maybe a, I don't want to say a, a barrier, but it created a, a learning requirement that I think did help us when we were younger. Um, that said, though, it, I would be curious to hear from someone, you know, who's 18 to 25 right now of, of how they feel about that. Yeah, I think we were like some of the last generation to um, learn map and compass use and really just how to navigate with a map in a traditional sense. And like right now I haven't done that in a number of years. I have maps for my favorite regions 
just for fun because I think it's fun to get that map out on the table and geek out with a friend. But for practical purposes, it's not required anymore. And I think for someone that's younger than I am, like they're like, well, why would I do that? Like, why does that need to happen? The maps look good on the wall. You know, you frame them and put some glass over them. I've seen a few of those in my travels. <laughs> you know, the uh, the Washburn uh, Denali map is is one of the is one of the classics for that for that use, especially one that's been folded a bunch and has a bunch of marks on it and stuff. It'd be pretty cool. I used to, you know, we I used to carry them. I still used to carry them, and then, you know, it was that just in case mindset. You know, and I remember as a kid, I grew up learning how to use charts and maps on the ocean, sailing with my dad. And we had our map. He even had this thing, a, a Loran uh, thing that the, <laughs> I remember having to read those numbers out. And he was up there on the map, turning it out, but um, kind of pre GPS. And, and we had maps and all this stuff. And then I remember he had a book on celestial navigation and a sextant. And I asked him, like, you know, why do we have this? And he, he remember, looked at me. And he was just like, just in case, just in case. Um, but I'll be honest, yeah. I, Did he know how to use yeah, it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we had the book. That's why we had the book that you'd read just in case. But I stopped doing that, and I think a lot of that ended up becoming the reliability of these mapping features and 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 the phones and the battery lives and things like that. And I think it's just become a part of our life that it has become that that reliable. Um, but I, I still valued my experiences with that, that tactile experience of holding a map, running your fingers across it, learning how to navigate that way. And I think that made me better at using some of these tools these days. But that's, that's just my opinion. Yeah, I always really liked it. I still carry a compass in my little emergency kit. Um, maybe, I, maybe I should forget it. I mean, <laughs> extra I mean, weight. <laughs> There's an app for that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and even in the avalanche world, you know, a lot of a lot of what we're doing in the avalanche world it's moved over to to digital stuff. For me when I'm taking field observations it, it started out as it had to be pen and paper on your or pencil and paper uh in your in your field books, but a lot of mine are just audio dictations now. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess coming full circle back to our golden age premise, I still will advocate that now is the golden age of ski mountaineering. We have all these tools. We have all this information. We can stand on the shoulders of those before us. We have so much knowledge from that the you know the generations and many's before us. And right now, it's like there's just so much opportunity for adventure. Still, even with all of the obvious plumb lines having been skied. I think there's a ton to do in the coming decades. And I and I know that's my relationship with it. Yeah, you're at a kind of convergence point, really, When now that I think about it, because you're exactly right. I mean, with this amazing technology, but there's still a bunch of unexplored terrain. And once that terrain is explored, it's explored. That's it's It's done. So you can still go back and enjoy it, but it's not the same experience. And... Um, so that is a good, that's a really good point, Adam. You know, I would, I would tend to agree with that, you know. Um, and we, I, I don't think we were thinking that way back in the 1970s or 80s. We were doing first, first ascents and, 
um, climbing first ascents. But, you know, I wasn't thinking, oh, this is the perfect time. You know, it's, it's so easy to get to this stuff and there's tons of this stuff out there. Instead, it was quite a struggle all, almost every time. So it, it felt it was I really enjoyed it and was very compelled, but it didn't necessarily feel like a golden age. Well, I wonder, you know, one of the things to me is we always compare ski mountaineering, particularly not just backcountry skiing, but ski mountaineering um, to climbing. And I think one of the ways that the sports differ is with skiing. I mean, at a certain point in steepness and edge can, can no longer grip, you know, we can't, there's a certain point where we can't necessarily go steeper. I mean, that's just realistic where climbing, they can continue to push grades and smaller holds and smaller holds, um, steeper terrain, things like that. I disagree. I think what's going to happen is some guy's going to figure out a different edge for a ski and, uh, or a different type of ski that's going to work on steeper terrain. And, uh, you know, and then there's, of course, the, you know, there, there's been this, um, base jumping ethos that's snuck its way into, into extreme skiing, which I found to be a little disappointing the way it was executed with the deaths and all, but nonetheless, you know, there was that, I, you know, I I like to think it's, there's a limit that we're up against, just like you're saying, Bill, but when I think it through, kind of apply a little more thought to it i'm thinking no because it's all everything has always changed and always evolved and i just imagine there's some guy out there right now probably some some total freak who's trying to figure out a ski that'll hold on a 70 70 degree ice slope (laughs) (laughs) maybe with some kind of special special ice axe to go with it (laughs) yeah right i mean that's kind of that's kind of the that's kind of the dream, right? For, for steep skiers at least. Yeah. yeah. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I always think about where our sport is progressing right now is just like bigger, faster, um, yeah. You know, link ups, things like that, where, where the fitness component becomes a little more, um, important and, yeah. uh, you know, yeah, I, I like that. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think it's this combo of, traditional schema or ski mountaineering with free riding like merging together so it's really Mm -hmm. strong uphill athletes with really impressive downhill athletes and then all of a sudden people can ski more in a day but they can also maybe not do that down climb or rappel or not ski as tentative and as cautious through the steeper crux sections and yeah. to me, that's like this beauty and of combining like free riding and schemo. Um, and I'm, I'm not either really, but. Yeah. It's what, when Dean, was first starting to pr- really promote all this stuff, they came up with all those terminologies and they had one called free touring, which was kind of like free riding and touring. Yeah. I, you know, what happened in Europe with alpinism is, you know, that in the Alps, the roots did get taken and there were fewer and fewer new routes. So the alpinists started doing their link ups and, and that sort of thing, which is exactly what you guys have been doing, you know, and, and 
so it's just, and that's a very natural progression and I admire it greatly. I think it's super cool because it, you don't have to go do something that's exception that's, you know, life threatening, but you can do something that's very challenging and creative and basically make a contribution to the sport in terms of progressing it. Pretty cool. For myself individually, that's been a way that I can find like a lot of joy in the mountains Yeah, without as accepting more and more risk. Um, exactly. Like Billy and I were sitting in the tent a couple weeks ago in the Andes and I was sort of like, yeah, you know, it's like I can either continue to push it further and further, which I still want to do from time to time, or I can go have an endurance odyssey and sort of get that same feeling. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's a way that it feels sustainable to me. Maybe not in time, because it takes a lot of time to do that kind of stuff, but uh, I can still scratch the itch, per se, and find a lot of joy without that extreme amount of risk, which is great. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I totally agree. That's what I got into over the years, because let's face it, the European style of extreme skiing is not highly sustainable, you know eventually you fall and uh, it's not a good thing. But if you get into that stuff where you challenge yourself in a more sustainable way, it can be really rewarding. And it's, you know, and that's when you can pursue your relationships in your life and you're not being cruel to the people that love you and, and that sort of thing, you know, but rather you can just be creative and doing these wonderful things and showing the limits of human potential. Really nice. So, Lou, one thing I wanted to ask um, you in particular and in, in getting into the kind of the history side of this is about who's documenting this stuff, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and where is this getting uh, kind of preserved? Because, again, when I do this comparison to climbing, there's, there's quite a bit. Um, <laughs> you know, the people chronicling that sport and quite a bit of yeah. – um, you know, whether it's the Alpinist, well, the Alpine Journal, yeah. all these things, individuals, and I just, in ski mountaineering, when I look at it, I mean, obviously, you've been probably the leader in that, particularly for North America. Um, there's been a few others, you know, like yeah. um, Lowell Skoog um, in the Northwest. Do I say that right? Skoog or Skog? Skoog. I've never... Yeah. Skoog, okay. Um uh, and then, you know, in the Tetons, Tom Turiano has been a great yeah. chronicler there yeah. for them. I, I found that the Wasatch kind of lacks that in a way, particularly in the last yeah. 20, 30 years. There's, there's a few, but, yeah. um, there's no like really definitive source. And yeah, I just, I don't, I, I don't see it in the same way climbing has and, yeah. and stuff. It's a lot, it's decentralized a lot more and, you know, welcome to the postmodern world. You know, we're you know, one man's value is another man's thing to forget. So, um, but, you know, Lowell has done the best job of anybody. He's been really impressive with his, um, with his website spaced out. I think it's alpenglow.org. Yeah. But in, in any case, yeah, Alpenglow. Yeah, but Lowell's been great because he's had all these different um, people that have done this extreme skiing in the in the Cascades have been able to get in there and leave the record. And as well as the ski traverses, which Lowell has always been a big advocate of. And he's been the, basically the, the pioneer in ski traversing in the Pacific Northwest for years. And he and 
and Carl, his brother Carl, when Carl was still alive. So, you know, the documentation gets done, but you're exactly right. It, it's nothing similar to, to what happens with climbing, which is just gets almost almost excessive sometimes, you know, with all the ratings and grades, and which I've dabbled in a little bit myself with trying to grade ski descents and that sort of thing, but it never never caught on with my readers nor with myself, really. It was just kind of a little too finicky and fiddly. But, um, yeah, so I don't know what the answer to that is. I think the best thing is nowadays everything gets published, and it's probably in the in what you could think of as sort of a permanent record. It's not like, you know, engraved on stone tablets. It's mostly digital, and I suppose that could go away. You know, somebody somewhere is probably enjoying noting what's happened and maybe considering writing more of of a historical-type narrative like Wild Snow when I did it. You know, what, what happened with Wild Snow, the book, was that was that was kind of my era, you know. So I was really hip to what was what had happened and what had gone on and was able to to go back from that. And and now, you know, that I've I'm in my older years and stuff, it's I'm this isn't my era anymore. So I I don't track the stuff mentally the way I used to and and I'm not I'm not really the right guy to write about it, but I think there's probably some other guy out there that is. That's my hope anyway. Well, it, it almost seems like an insurmountable task at this point. I mean, when you look at how much, because we talk about this golden era, I mean, to me, I'm always trying to, in my mind, like keep track of like, oh, what was the biggest stuff that yeah. happened in Alaska this year? What happened down in the Andes? What's happening in, in the Wasatch? What's happening in Europe? I mean, you know, in, in, in my own mind, it, it, it just seems like insurmountable. Well, well, there's two things that go on with that from a from a historian standpoint, one is is the actual chronology of events, which if you look on my website, there's a chronology of North American ski mountaineering. And that's an example of, of pretty much just listing the more important things in your opinion as a writer that have gone on. And that can, you know, you can put a lot of information in a chronology. And then, but then you have the narrative style and that's where the being a, a writer of history comes in and you have to pick out certain events that are symbolic of the greater ethos of the time and you write those events in and you you make those symbolic in your story of other stuff that's going on so there's you know it's possible to do and I can't say I've I've never considered myself very good at it I had a really tough time with wild snow because I wasn't educated as a historian I knew nothing about history writing um, and that was, it was quite a struggle and, and actually still is for me. You know, I much rather just write about, um, you know, skiing a pow- a powder slope or something like that. <laughs> you know? So anyhow, but I think, you know, I'm optimistic about that, but I, I, I hear what you're saying, Bill, cause you know, people put huge amounts of energy and in, into this stuff and they, they put huge amounts of treasure into it. They take huge risks and they do it for all kinds of different reasons, but it would be nice in 30 years to know who did what um, rather than it just getting sort of forgotten, you know? And I've always kind of thought not, I'm not, I wouldn't be like asking who, who is responsible for this because I don't think anyone is inherently responsible, but I mean, yeah, 
because in climbing, it comes from a variety of sources, whether it's a, a guidebook documenting the first ascent um, and maybe a historical tidbit about the route, um, or is it the media's um, kind of job to do this, or is it you know just a, a motivated individual uh, who, who wants to take it on? And I think with skiing, it's, it's, it, things are just seemingly more de- nebulous to me because even the concept of the first ascent I mean, many of those are unknown, which in the climbing world is just not nearly as much the case. You know, you have much more well-documented first ascensionists and, and things such as that. Where in skiing, it's like, I don't know, around here in Utah, it's just, I don't know, somebody probably did it back in, you know, 20, 30 years ago. <laughs> so just assume that. Um, yeah, no, that's the, tr- that's the truth. You know, it, it is different that way, and especially the less, the more moderate descents and things you'd have a hard time finding who really, really, really first did it. But I did go through this when I wrote Wild Snow. I spent three years on the phone writing letters. This was before we had email. And, you know, I did have email at the end of the project, but at the beginning I did not. And I was writing letters and getting letters back. I mean, it was amazing how slow-paced it was, but it felt normal because there was no other alternative. But, you know, I'd get something back. I'm trying to think of a good example like um, Mount Mount Whitney in California. I was trying to find out who really had skied at first. And, you know, I, I found a guy who was plausibly told me that he probably was him and his friends. And he was a really great guy. And so when I wrote it up, I said, well, here's, you know, here's a guy that was probably the first ski to send him out Whitney, you know, and can couch it in those kind of qualifiers so you don't have to sound like you're, you know, you're talking in absolutes. Now, and because I wasn't a professional history writer, I did get myself into trouble. Let's not, let's not, uh, (laughs) you know, the history of it is there were certain individuals who were not too happy with what I'd come up with. It was like, you know, they'd come back to me and there's no way that guy did it first because my friend did it five years before that, you know, and that, but that's, I was used to that from being a climber, you know, in the old days with Climbing Magazine and Michael Kennedy and I being friends and, and Harvey Carter and all this stuff that went on back in the, in the seventies and the late sixties, you know, we'd get into that too. There'd be a route and some guy would write in and say, you know, or he'd write into the Alpine Journal and, Say you know I di- I'm I did the first ascent of the of the wa- north wall of the west of the west summit you know and and I'm cl- basically he was claiming the first ascent and then the next three months later the next journal or magazine would come out and there'd be a letter to the editor you know I did actually it was me that did the first of that and you know there were a number of times that happened. And then there were arguments, you know, about whether a guy really did it or not. Because you, you, you did get into this Captain Cook type fraud thing where people would actually claim to have done something where they actually hadn't done it. <laughs> so, Which is a big part of climbing and skiing history. I mean, forever, really. You know, there's books written about who first climbed Denali. There's books written about who first climbed the Grand Teton. Um, so like, it seems for better, for worse, people have been claiming things they haven't done for, <laughs> for, for way too long. 
But but I think what Billy was saying is like it's going to take a, a motiva- motivated individual like Lou was for so long, like a few of these others were in the Northwest and in the Tetons. And like I'm seeing in the Tetons is Tom Turiano has stepped out of that role. Like there, there have been gaps. Um, and, and now the American Alpine Journal is somewhat trying to be that, like at least for American skiing, North American skiing, like that chronicler, but I'm curious of how much momentum they're going to gain. The, the, I remember when the AJ was a number of years ago. I talked. I talked to the editor, and I forgot who that was. But um, he said, "Oh, it's we're going to start covering ski mountaineering." And I wondered what that meant. And exact. And it's exactly what you're talking about, Adam. Is it seemed like it just kind of fizzled along, and there's not much effort by people are not making much effort to send in their descents or their trips and neither is the AJ making much effort to, to cover those trips or by publishing articles about them and that sort of thing. Nonetheless, there's stuff in there, you know, so it's, it's not verboten. It's definitely, they'll cover it. And if more people put more emphasis on, on it, especially members of the club, you know, they take the, the club's always taken the membership pretty seriously, you know, and if people are members of the club and speak up, that can have an effect. It's been neat to see more skiing in the journal. It just seems like there's still such massive, really gaping holes that it's sort of like, all right, just a cool uh, number of neat, exciting descents that for the most part were already very public in a lot of like the the low key, but maybe really inspiring descents might not make it in there because they weren't on a big mountain that people know the name of. Um, because if, because to me like ski mountaineering, sure. It's amazing what people do in some of the greater ranges and the Himalaya, Karakoram, Alaska, the Andes, but like as a member of the journal or just as a skier based in the U S like to me, what I'm more inspired by is what people do in their backyards because that's what we all do most of the time. So whether it's in the, all of our local mountain ranges, you know, the greater Rockies or the Cascades. And that seems to be omitted a little more because it doesn't seem as exciting or dare I say sexy. Well, it almost seems as if, you know, the enormity of the task of of something like this. I mean, it it seems as if regionally, you know, it, it would be too hard to almost try and document these things overarching, you know, or all-encompassing. Um, but regionally, I, I, it seems as if with skiing, it's really been up to people. I mean, like Lou, like back in Colorado, I mean, you've probably documented the history of Colorado ski mountaineering um, to pretty much great extent um, up until recently. But, you know, who's going to be doing that beyond that you know who's going to take lowell's project and 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 take that forward i mean adam you've been helping with maybe tom in the tetons um you know here in the wasatch there's just no one um in the northeast they actually do a pretty good job with that stuff yeah the northeast um, yeah they, I found. the northeast has a real tradition of history you know people like history up there the history of ski touring in the northeast is the oldest in the united states you know and uh 
that so there's this kind of richness and texture and fabric to it that may, I think makes people more comfortable with it. Places like the Wasatch, you know, that's more like that's my secret spot. Nobody knows about it, so don't no way you're going to write about it. You know, it's it's like it's so crowded. Um, and then Andrew did a really good job with the shooting gallery, but Andrew's kind of in the same places like me or Lowell or or Tom. You know, you just kind of you, you you age out of this stuff. You're only human. Well, and that's that's the thing. I mean, who's who's writing the next Wild Snow? Who's writing the next uh, these kind of things? And I think m- maybe this is a a public call to action. Yeah, exactly. For that. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's make it so. Well, ski 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 touring and ski mountaineering now is 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 mainstream. You know, before it was. I feel like I feel like these descents. You know, someone goes and skis big XYZ peak or skis this face. It makes for a nice cover shot on the magazine, but it's novelty still. And now it's not novelty, it's mainstream. And I think that's, that's what's cool. Yeah, exactly. And when I wrote Wild Snow, there was, there was not that convergence. I mean, I, the, the concept of ski, doing a ski descent of a peak and ski touring were very, very different than the ski industry um, side of the equation. And I actually ran into that a lot when I was doing the history because I'd talk to these guys and I'd go, okay, I want, I'm want i trying to find out what who first skied XYZ. And I'd talk to some guy and he'd go, well, you know, I, I know who built the first ski lift over there, you know, and there was always the ski lift or the ski resort or the, you know, or the ski instructors. And yeah, I tell you, I got so tired of it, you know. I was like, just, you know, I just want to talk about the people in the snow, not the dang ski industry, you know, so. <laughs> I, I thought this has been great. I mean, to me, this is an interesting, an interesting topic. And I think it's something that's important. And I, I think this matters, you know, and this sport is, is blowing up and it's blowing up here in North America. It's been big in Europe and other parts of the world. Um, Adam and I just got back from Chile we've been going down there for a little over 10 years now and seeing the sport grow in Chile and seeing the Chilenos, you know, the, the culture of it now is, is huge and it's, it's inspiring. And, um, you know, they're starting to build their own history, not just Westerners or no, I shouldn't say Westerners, not just like people from, uh, North America, Canada, Europe coming down, um, and skiing these things, but Chilenos skiing these things, uh, on their, you know, um, on their home turf, which is, which is inspiring. And I, I just think it is important to, to document these things, uh, because it's fun and it's interesting and it is a, it is a beautiful, you know, romantic sport that makes for great stories and great adventure and, and great inspiration. Yeah. Um, you know, and Adam and I always, yeah. we joke down in Chile that everything you ever go do that, oh, that's probably a first descent. <laughs> that's probably a first descent. They, they say that for everything, you know. That, that, and, that's what we've been told no matter what. You know, and then and then you, <laughs> and then you find out that, you know, <laughs> some guy back in the 90s ended up skiing it or something, which. which what which, we're talking about here is sharing and being generous, and generosity and sort of, the, you know, being ethical and and good human beings and sharing, sharing things that produce value. And the sport produces a lot of value for people. It's fun. You've got relationships. You do it with your friends and, you know, you want to share it. And one way of sharing it is the history. And, you know, there should be no guilt or, or trepidation about that. It's, it's a really cool thing. And that's, 
And there, and then there's lessons to be learned from history as well, just in terms even avalanche safety and that sort of thing. I mean, you can study back on the history of of avalanche safety and see the mistakes people have made or the developments, and you can see the trends and all that stuff can work in your head to to give you a, a better judgment or increase your ability to be safe. So there's there's a lot of reasons for this this historical stuff. So I'm glad to hear you guys talking about it and thinking about it. It's pretty cool. Yeah, and I and I hope hopefully this conversation spurs more and more, and 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 people do start getting more into it because I think you know we look at the one of my questions I had kind of written down, um, you know, what's the influence of social media on this stuff? I feel like with social media, some of these histories or, or events, I shouldn't say histories, but these events can, can be fleeting in the mind and yeah. things are so fast paced and, and it's coming at you. And like I said, I'm, I'm scouring things to try and figure out what's going on. It's like there was 10 cool things that happened just yesterday. And then two days later, I've already forgotten about them. Um, and, yeah. and it's cool that that so much is happening, but there's also a little bit of, I think, you know, some stuff's lost in that, in that, cause it is so fleeting. Oh yeah. I think yeah. it's mainly lost personally. Like, like social media. Sure. You get a lot of information really fast, but like it's the opposite of sharing history. Yeah. Or, or you know, really chronicling something. It's, it's more saying, Hey, this happened. And now we move on. And I think it's replacing traditional history. And I don't think it's actually doing the same thing in any way, shape, or form. No. No, it's not structured. It has the wrong structure for for history. You know, something like going to Lowell's website and just scrolling through all the dissents, that's structured in a way that it's useful. And you can can search on it. pretty easily and stuff. But social, I mean, you know, you don't even know how the search engine's going to work in terms of search. You know, who knows what it's going to land on when you try to throw in some keywords, especially nowadays with everything getting monetized the way it is. So it's really tricky. Yeah, if you're a professional, you could climb a piece of choss or a low angle slope and it might be really neat and get a lot of attention. Or you can be a, a nobody and do something cutting edge unless you thump your chest really loud. You're probably yeah, gonna get you- passed over pretty quickly. <laughs> a friend of mine a friend of mine, Jake, always always says that anyone can be whoever they want to be or make anything look however they want to make it look That's, on the internet. Yeah, there's some truth to that. Lou, you're writing a memoir? Yes, I am. I've been working on a memoir for about five years. It's been a Really tough project. In fact, I, I usually say it's the toughest thing I've ever done because um, I, I didn't want to just do a, what we call in the industry of me and Joe's story, which is, you know, me and me and Adam went and skied the peak, but rather, you know, what it's like, life was like growing up in this or being a teenager in a ski town all the way up through uh, making some bad mistakes and uh, relationships and So I've been working in all those themes. It's what's called a braided memoir, which means it has quite a few themes that all braid together to the final outcome. It's been an interesting process. I've learned a huge amount. I wish I, you know, had more years ahead of me because I could apply what I've learned about writing. (laughs) Probably got a few more books in me, but it takes so dang long to write these things. But in any case, yeah. And, and, you know, I've 
really, I get into what it was like through the era of um, actually early days in Yosemite um, in the 70s, and then ski touring and ski mountaineering on on in the 70s and 80s, all my, when I, and then on into the 90s when I skied all the 14ers in, in Colorado and, and that sort of thing. So it's coming along. It's called Avalanche Dreams. Anyway, but it's it's coming along. And one of my taglines is is uh, Lou Dawson wanted to be a mountaineer. He didn't count on the avalanches. Mm. Unfortunately, that's something a, a few of us can relate to. Yeah, I know. Well, that's pretty neat. Seems like you're not just saying you know your mountain adventures, but more like how they shaped you, how living in the Rockies and yeah. your family and yeah. That, that's awesome. Exactly. We had a had a pretty rowdy family in Aspen. My parents were hippies, and you know, so I've got a lot of interesting stuff. Some funny, some tragic. You know, that all works together. So we'll see how it goes. But I guess one thing I want to reference, and Billy, I've talked about this with you, is a few years ago, locally, they put on this chat about the climb of the Infinite Spur, and they had. Michael Gardner, who climbed it a couple years ago really fast. And then they had Michael Kennedy, who climbed it, I believe, with George Lowe. And they they had the three of them there. I don't know if anyone else watched this. And they were all – it was neat. It was during like sort of peak COVID, and it was uh, a live video conference kind of thing. Um. And what was really neat about it is it hits on this question that we we're just talking about. And that question is, what makes a good partner? And you have the three people, let's call one old or a little older and one middle-aged and one quite young, you know, just for simple ages there. And you had Michael Gardner being the youngest, and he's mainly talking about an athletic experience. And like the the climbing and the endurance and all of that, and then you had Michael Kennedy sort of talking somewhat about the climbing, but a lot of it about his experience with a partner. And then you had George being the oldest person on the the chat, and he solely discussed having a good time with his friend Michael Kennedy. Like he didn't remember the hard moves. He didn't remember, you know, burning calves that Gardner still had in his head or, you know, the scary, risky stuff. All George still remembered was having a wild experience with his good friend, Michael Kennedy. And to me, when I heard that, like it was really, it stood out to me. Um, I was like, huh, because I'm much closer to Michael Gardner's age. And I'm like, I can see how you know, add 30, 40, 50 years to this. And all I'm really going to remember is who did I do that with? I'm not going to remember the challenges on the way up or down the mountains. I'm going to remember who did I sit next to when I did it with and who can I still laugh about it with or hopefully still laugh about it with. Um, And I guess what makes good partner is like the reality is – especially in the like moving through the mountains, you're just mainly hanging out with somebody, whether it's a classic ski tour and you're walking through the woods 
or it's an expedition where you mainly sit in your pajamas in a tent, um, you spend a lot of time with other people. So who makes a good partner? It's like, sure, we can get into the nuts and bolts of, well, it's somebody that has a similar risk tolerance and skill set to me, but it's who do you want to spend time with in the mountains? Yeah, I, you know, thinking, I thought through that question, you guys posed it to me in your, in your preliminaries for this. And obviously the social friendship um, aspect of it is really important and becomes the most important thing often. Um, but it's based on your goals. You know, if you're just out to for the athletic side and you're trying to climb a peak faster than anybody else, you need somebody that can go the same speed as you do. It can be as simple as that. So, so it's a multifaceted deal. And I totally, you know, I'm good friends with Michael Kennedy and, you know, we've talked about this stuff over the years and we used to climb a lot together. And, and I know that when we were in our, in our youth and doing these climbs that the friendship was just, was a big part of it, just hanging out together and yucking it up and going to these climbs and, and having a crew, you know, and that sort of thing. And, you know, and then in terms of risk, you know, early on in your career, you may want somebody who's as risk tolerant as you are, um, because that can be a real drag, as you guys, I'm sure, have experienced. You're out, you decide you really, you know, it's okay to ski a slope or do an ice climb or whatever, and the person you're with just w decides that it's too risky and too scary when you know it, you know, and you're... They may be right. You may be right. Maybe both of you are right. But the problem is your risk tolerance is incompatible. Um, but, you know, later on in your life, so early on, you might want a, a person who's as risk tolerant as you are. But, you know, what's funny to me, I was thinking about this, is later on, you might want somebody who's actually not as much of a risk taker to keep you in line. So, you know, it's going to vary with what stage of life you're in and and then it gets into the deal where you know of if you're a man your girlfriends or women um wives or just if you're a person in your your relationship with lovers and and uh, friends of the intimate sort you know and then it's a whole nother set of motivations and reasons why you're out there um you know some of the experiences i've had with my wife just out doing these beautiful, fairly safe or totally safe ski tours have been just the highlight of our lives. And they, you know, as things get hard and we get older and, and that sort of thing, we look back on those things with such affection and we can, you know, we can sit there and talk about it and fantasize and think about those times we'd had together and, and those emotions well up and it can be very healing and sustaining, really a cool thing. So that alone, I mean, maybe that's a big part of what makes the ideal partner is the person that you can make memories with. And maybe later on you can, you can revisit those memories and get all the value from it. I think that almost sometimes begs the question, you know, what comes first, chicken or the egg? Does the partner come first and the objective second? Or does the objective come first and the partner second? I think about that sometimes, you know, and particularly as my, my work as a ski guide, it's, it's, I'm often given, um, you know, a guest who, who 
why try and understand their profile and what would be best for them and then choose an objective and it's not really the other way around and i think some people don't do that well uh recreationalists don't do that well often where they'll they'll have an objective in mind and then they try and choose the partner where to me the people matter more and sometimes maybe you have the partner and and let's figure out what would be best for you to do together but yeah i think lou you gave a pretty all-encompassing answer i mean sure in the called mushy-wishy way, you know, it's all about forming friendships. But sometimes if, like, it's pure athletics and you do want to set uh, the the highest pace you can go or go as fast as you can or, or climb or ski at your limit, like, you sort of need a partner that, yeah, it's the same risk tolerance, but also the same skill set um, that maybe is going to complement you. And sometimes that has blossomed, I know, for myself into some good friendships, which has been really cool. Like, Certain people, like, I'm like, hey, we should start skiing together. I think we sort of like to do the same kind of thing. And we end up being good buddies. And then we become friends, and it, it's like this full circle, all-encompassing. While other people, it's like, yeah, we have the same skill set, but I don't think we're going to, just because we're both like the same thing and both good at whatever, doesn't mean we're going to mesh well in the mountains. Yeah, well, the social aspect is... The social aspect can be very powerful, and you know, I what I one thing I've noticed in all my years of ski touring in Europe over the span of when I was doing the Wild Snow website um, was how much more social those guys were than we are here, and a lot of that was based on having a lot more huts and um, trailhead huts and summit huts and just places where people could gather. And then that, you know, that whole kind of, um, I don't know what you'd call it, German, Austrian, Italian sort of traditions of hospitality. And you get this thing going where, you know, you're in a hut, for example, and there'll be, you know, 50 people in there singing a birthday song together or something like that. And and then you can make friends with those guys. You exchange phone numbers and, you know, friendships happen, relationships, I'm sure quite a few marriages and Things like that have happened through that that sort of thing. And, yeah, we get some of that here, but not near enough, in my opinion. I'd love to see a lot more of that kind of really powerful um, interaction of a lot of different people with just the commonality of loving the skiing. Yeah, it is different here. It is different in, in, in North America and, and even in the United States. And I, I think hut culture yeah, is. It is. Um, yeah. I'm not saying that I wish we had that here in the United States because I do appreciate the wilderness component that we have here and the lack of that. Um, but it yeah, yeah. would be nice to have it in a little more uh, of the European fashion here than, than we do. Maybe a little bit more I'd appreciate. Yeah. Well, we could, we could, we have enough room. We could have both. Exactly. But it, it's a matter of political, it's political will and it's, it's really difficult. You know, the, Building a hut nowadays is, I know people who are trying to do it, and it's its desperate. This leans into community as well. Like, I, I know where I live. Um, in the Tetons, we all live very far apart. Like, I have friends that live an hour and a half away, and we technically are neighbors or live in the same mountain town. And there's no central gathering place. There's no, like, main trailhead or main bar and it's not like a small ski town where like 
everyone comes back to one spot. I think of, I don't know, like Telluride's pretty small or, or, or a lot of other places aren't as spaced out as where I live. And that's cool. And I, I really like the rural aspect of it. But due to that, it creates lack of community in, in many ways. Um, but especially in the ski community, especially for backcountry skiers. You know, if you ski at the ski resort, you're probably hanging out at the base of the ski resort. But ski in the mountains and sort of all over the place. And I think it can make a bit of a, a clicky community. You know, I look at like the Wasatch or the Tetons and there's, you know, there's kind of these cliques of people who ski together. And every now and then there'll be some commingling, but it's, it, it does become very, very clicky without, without those central hubs. I always wanted to see more of, you know, like the climber's bar, you know, and, and that kind of concept uh, in, the, in our sport. P- gathering places, huts where a lot of people showed up at once, um, trailhead coffee shop, whatever. And we, it's one, I have to say, that's one of my disappointments with the way the sport's gone in, in our North American culture, especially in the U.S., is it's always had this kind of clicky stuff going on. You know, people sort of giving people the sideways glance stink eye at the trailhead because, you know, they might raid their stash and at the summits as well. You know, you got you ski in the Wasatch and you get to the top of Superior and, you know, everybody's kind of like, you know, what do you, you know, they're kind of waiting to see what, what you're going to drop down. And, the other, you know, you know, that kind of like, I don't know what how to describe it exactly, but it's kind of a weird vibe. And, you know, you get to a summit and most of the ski touring summits that I've been to in Europe, there might, if there were 20 people up there, everybody's just chattering away and nobody really cares who's going down what. And admittedly, ski touring in other, say in Italy and, and Austria is, can be pretty crowded. Um, that's the downside. But, you know, you get to a trailhead there and nobody's like giving you the stink eye because there's because there's 40 cars and nobody cares, you know? So it's, it's definitely, I found that to be quite pleasant. Do you think some of that's due to the snow? Like, like there's more powder panic here because we have powder and I mean, they don't really ski that kind of powder with the same frequency. Yeah, it might be. And plus, you know, I know one another thing I like about the European attitude, you know, what we're getting into here, I think, is really good. The difference between the sort of the European styles and attitudes as opposed to North American. And one thing I I've noticed about when I ski toured in Europe is that people aren't quite so powder freaked. You know, they're not so powder freaky. They're not like I've got to get a powder run. You know, it's just like they're out skiing. There's a run below them. They're a good skier a lot of times. And they just are out there to ski it, to ski it. You know, they don't really care what the snow's like. And then, yeah, if it's great snow, then everybody gets down to the hut or the restaurant. And they're all like, oh, that was the most amazing day of my life, you know. But, but they're not, you know, making this big deal out of powder. In fact, I've gotten a little tired of this powder stuff, you know. It's just like powder this, powder that. I mean, come on. Can we just talk about snow? <laughs> you know? Well, and I think that's – I mean, I, I, I admittedly – am a perpetuator of that mentality. I, you know, like Adam, Adam and I say things like, if you're not first, you're last, you know, like, <laughs> or like the whole concept of like the, the powder panic, um, or we call like, if, is it that if, binary? 
It's first or last. <laughs> you either first or you're last, Jason. Okay. It's you either you're either skiing it on lead or you're skiing it on top rope. Don't want to be a top roper. That's how you know. We've kind of had this mindset of that's how we. You don't want to be a top roper. Um, and, and, Hang dogger. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, and then if you're like third or fourth, then you're just hang dogging it. But like, um, and and it has created a, this competitive attitude, and and there's a part of me that loves that because I like the problem solving. Is how am I going to get there first and be on that run in the good condition, or or maybe go to that other run that no one thought about? Like I like that challenge, that puzzle, that problem solving. But you are right, Lou. Like there's a part of me that hates it too. And, and I'm starting to relax a bit. And I find particularly when I'm working, I've gotten a little bit better when I'm with a guest or something. I'm like, it's okay if two or three people ski this run first. It's not the end of the world. Calm down. And I'm saying this, I'm saying this in my head, you know, and my guests may not know this at the time, but I'm like, it's okay. Like, just breathe. They'll ski it. We'll ski it. Everybody <laughs> will be psyched. Um, but there's still that little part of me. That, that has a hard time with that. Yeah. Because I know Adam feels the same way. I, I had a longtime client tell me that last year. Yeah, they, they had to tell me. Yeah, they had to tell me <laughs> to pretty much like, hey, I don't care that two people just skied the shoot first. And I was like, really? Because I, I was perplexed. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's scarcity, right? Like the, it's a scarcity and overall it's a powder culture. And people, I think... They go ski touring because the snow is not as good at the resort, so therefore I'll go out here. Yeah. Well, to me, I go ski touring because that's how I choose to move through the mountains, and that's how I choose to enjoy the sport of skiing. And I just happen to live in a place where it seems to snow endlessly, um, which sometimes is a little much. Like last winter, everyone's like, oh, it's so good. I'm like, man, it'd be nice if it went blue and stable. <laughs> we could actually like <laughs> ski something that's not 25 degrees. Yeah, I, I think I think I was in the minority of that thought process. Yeah. Rather, I know well, I was in the minority. Well, let's be clear. I mean, I'm I've I've been plenty of a of a powder seeker over my life as well, and I stood on the top of a mountain and and jumped off a, onto the slope as quick as I could to get there before any anybody else could. But um, that's more the exception than the rule for me over the years. You know, I was always. Um, you know, kind of a little more relaxed about that than maybe some of my friends were. But uh, but I still, I, I got the fever. And I'm sure people pe- people that know me over the years and hear this podcast are going to go, yeah, Lou, you said you didn't get the fever, but I saw you with the fever more times, enough times it's to chronic. figure you had definitely had a disease. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but in any case, I've just enjoyed that you know, being able to step back and and hang with people who weren't all hot and bothered, you know, sitting on their skis, having a picnic on the summit, even though there's going to be five or eight extra tracks on the slope, you know. I think Adam will probably... Maybe one day I can get there. One day. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think Adam and I agree that we, we're looking forward to that yeah. day when we're, when we're there. We're trying. It's going to take... But, um, take just time. stick with it. <laughs> <laughs> But it's all perspective. Like last year when I was with a long-term client, he's like, hey, like it's not going to change my experience in the slightest. 
And he's like, are those tracks really going to affect your turns? And I'm like, eh, probably not. It's just it's more an aesthetic thing. And I think some of it is like taking that wilderness ethic to the nth degree. Like we're just used to, for the most part, not having a lot of people around and it not being that yeah. hard. And as that changes, and then I'll admit, yeah, I have a comp- competitive side and it's like, how do I balance like, because I'm guiding most of the time, like, well, I can't just go as fast as I can to get there first. But if I strategically set a pace, we could, we could be there first, you know? Yeah. But yeah, (laughs) then there's a whole nother variable that I can't fully control, which is a guide. I don't like that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I have to tell you, my ideal slope is a perfect corn slope, just ripened off the summit of a 14er, Fairly steep, not death-defying, about 2,000 vert. That's, that's the slope that I dream about. It's not a powder slope. Now, that might be because I'm from Colorado where most powder slopes can kill you pretty easily. So, And I was always a big advocate of waiting till spring to do these descents. And that's, that's of course, changed. But, but can't, can't, can't we think some of this is due to, like, a changing culture, like – and it's harder for me to talk about it because I'm not old enough. But 20 years ago, okay. No, but 20 years ago, there was just less and less people doing these things. And now, as ski touring and ski mountaineering has become more popular, it is more of a thing to find more people going for that line on the same day. And like that, that wasn't, and that's a new challenge. Thanks a ton. I think this was, I think this was super fun and, um, interesting conversation. I really, I really do think that, you know, the history of this sport is something that is important and, and I, and I'd want to say thank you, Lou, for doing all you've done, um, for helping document and chronicle this sport that means so much to us. And, um, you know, for Adam and I being an inspiration when we were younger and still to this day, like that means a lot to us. And, and we were, you know, diehard followers of, of, of the website. And I've, you know, read through the copy of wild snow. I, I've referenced that like a textbook sometimes. Um, and, uh, and, and, and to all the others, you know, like what Lowell has done and, and, and the Northwest, that was something that was also informative to me during my time out there. And, um, you know, Adam and I did a trip to Mercedario, which is where, his brother died. Um, and a lot of that was because of things we had seen there and, and, and stuff. And, um, you know, so these were definitely important to us as young skiers and still to this day, I think. Um, but I, if, if I had one plug and parting thought was, I hope that we can continue to fill in these gaps and, you know, maybe find a way to use some of this fast paced social media to our advantage to help really document all the cool things that are happening because I think right now is, is a golden era. I think this is a boom right now in, in the ski mountaineering world. And I think it's pretty cool what people are doing in North America and, and in Europe and in, and in South America and in New Zealand. I mean, it's just, it's everywhere now, um, all over the world. And I think that's we more so than ever. I think if there was one big thing from my point of view, it's we, with the connective connectedness of the world the ski world now you know we see in real time what they're doing in europe we see in real time what they're doing in canada and alaska 
you know, we see what they're doing in South America and New Zealand and, and all these other places. And, and I think that's inspiring. Yeah. Well, Adam and yeah, Adam and Billy, it's been good to get to know you guys a little bit. I have great respect for the things you do and the, the excellent guiding I'm sure you accomplish. I, and I just would add, just encourage you to be safe and just go for those higher values that we talked about, the friendships, the relationships, the the beauty of that environment and, um, you know, being able to segue out of the, just approaching it as a, as an outdoor gym, which is good when you're, you know, for a while that's fun, but it, it, it's good when it evolves to other things. So pretty cool. Anyway, appreciate what you do. Yeah, Lou, it's been great to chat with you and, uh, similar to what Billy said, you know, been inspired by your writing and your exploits for quite a bit of time. And, um, we, we have shared a ski run before we, we, we skied, uh, whatever, right above 14 camp together in 2010. Oh. <laughs> yeah. You know, just like the random well, that's, below the, that's pretty cool. There. Yeah. Well, that, yeah. My, yeah. That was a little, okay. Well, I'm glad you, you didn't film me. <laughs> no, no, you, you wouldn't have wanted to film me. That's, <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, that was in 2010 when you went with uh, Louie and the whole Aspen crew. And we, yeah, we got it done, but it was a struggle for me, I have to admit. You know, but, but, uh, but you shared all your stuff on your website leading up to it, and that yeah. was my first big expedition. So I just did whatever you did. Ah. I had the same gear. I'm ah. not joking. <laughs> oh, that's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I was like, all right, well, this is what they're doing. This is what we should do too. Well, I hope that I hope it worked for the most part. Yeah. Uh, for the most part, um, we were eating your leftovers at base camp when we ran out of food. <laughs> you would like get, you would give us your bowl when you were done with it to like clean, would, like, lick it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, that's that's fun. Yeah. Well, be safe. That's the main thing. folks for listening and please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and head over to thehighroute.com. You got to remember those hyphens to learn more about what we were up to and how you can be involved. Lastly, the theme music you've heard comes from Albuquerque-based band Storms in the Hill Country from their album The Self-Transforming. We'll link to it on the website and the show notes. Onward and upward. Pay attention to the sounds. Pay attention to your dreams. Pay attention to what's all around. And everything that's in between. I see my beauty in you And I become the mirror that can't close its eyes I see my beauty in you